The Suffering Podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any other major podcast platform. Please subscribe and like to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. You can also find our latest episodes at thesufferingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Feel free to comment. We may read your comments on future podcasts and even reach out to you for a future guest spot. Like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Suffering Podcast. Here you'll see links to episodes, updates, and inside information on how to achieve greatness through the joy of suffering. We are proud to introduce the Dented Development Project. In conjunction with the Suffering Podcast, the Dented Development Project is a nonprofit 501c3 with a mission. That's to help first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Visit us at DentedDevelopmentProject.com and get involved today. Helping us means that we can take care of those who take care of us. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down and strap in. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt, gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the for Suffering, suffering Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each episode, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. So sit down and strap in. This is going to hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. Caffeina is now part of the Suffering Podcast family. We all need a boost of energy from time to time. Rather than reach for that fifth cup of coffee or grabbing a sugary, chemical-laden energy drink, choose the better alternative. That better alternative is Caffeina. Caffeina is a delicious caffeine and electrolyte-infused spring water that is micro-filtered for purity. It's a delicious and refreshing natural energy drink that delivers the most vital of elements to us, and that's water. There is no aftertaste, no chemicals, and no sugar. Caffeina is a perfect source for pre- and post-workout, morning or afternoon pick-me-up, or just something refreshing to quench your thirst. Caffeina is listed as Amazon's Choice on Amazon.com, and that comes with free shipping. Just search Caffeina, C-A-F-E-I-N-A, or check out our show notes for the link. Put a little pep in your step while still feeling good about the products you put in your body. Stay hydrated, stay awake, stay healthy with Caffeina. Inner demons are used as guerrilla tactics to enact a warfare that lends credence to the old adage that you cannot judge a book by its cover. The facade that looks ordinary can fool those around us into thinking that our lives are to be envied and they're virtuous and successful. But if you dig deep enough into any human and the facade will crack, showing all the struggles and all the suffering. It's easy to quantify and identify the majority of addictions through act, word, or deed, Drug and alcohol addictions are commonly known as detrimental. But what about the hidden addiction? And that's gambling. Gambling can grab hold of you and hang on so tightly. A drug or an alcohol addict will often say that they take their addiction choice on a regular basis just to get back to normal or to get even. Yet gambling addiction is more undercover and less visible. Yet gamblers are often chasing the same things as other addicts just to get even. The rush and the exhilaration of the chase towards victory, it's often short-lived. The effect on your life can reverberate and reach every facet. Like any other addiction, it can break you. Sooner or later, everybody goes bust. As we've talked about many times on the Suffering Podcast, it's not how hard you fall, 
but how strong you become as you lift yourself up. I'm Kevin Donaldson. I'm here with Mike Flace, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we talk about the addiction of gambling and the suffering that it brings. With Dan Trolero, Dan's chased this rabbit and rose again to educate on what he has learned by his own bad beats. Dan, thanks for coming in today. I really appreciate it. It's a long time coming. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. It's good to finally be here. I know we've been talking about this for months. It was. It's the weirdest way how we met. I've never had something like this before. Uh, Mike and I have been talking about getting on somebody with what most people refer to as the hidden addiction, that's gambling. I just made a cold call to, to 1-800-GAMBLER, yeah. and I get this call back from Dan. I tell Mike... Hey, I just got a phone with Dan Trolero. He's he's you. What were you? What was your title at the time? Assistant director. Assistant director. One eight hundred gambler. And he goes, wait, I know that name. I said right away. I picked. Up, I said he he does a show with Craig Carton. That's Dan Trolero <laughs> with the on the fan. Craig, you're still doing that show? Yes, we are. We do every Saturday morning. We do that show. Thirty minutes every Saturday morning. It's been great it's been doing it since the start of the year. It's hello, a fantastic. Hello, my show. name is Craig. Hello, my name is Craig. Nine thirty f- and st- live stream on. Odyssey uh, on the radio on 660 and 101.9 FM. I've heard okay, it now, several now times. you got your plugs out there. We're going to wrap up this show. Yeah, thanks for coming in, Dan. <laughs> Before we really get into it, I want to get into this week's social media question. It comes from Jim. It says, we throw around detrimental terms often in reference to addicts. How do those addicted feel about being called these terms? Now, if you drink too much, you're a drunk. If you're doing drugs, you're a junkie. Now, if you're a gambler, I've heard it thrown around as being a degenerate. I'm an addict. I always said I'm an addict, but you it's hard for anybody to pinpoint my addiction. I just do everything 150%. I've been called obsessive-compulsive. I've been called uh, other than thick-headed, but that's, that's <laughs> usually by my wife. How does it feel when somebody throws out those terms? Because you've battled with this addiction. You know, it's, it's funny. It's something we talk about a lot. When I was working as assistant director and even before that, and even around the country, we talk about how language matters, right? When, you, when you're throwing words around at someone that can be hurtful, you know, the, the tongue is a two-edged sword, right? It can, it can give hope and life to someone or it can really cut them down to size. And we see elements of that all around the country on a regular basis. And so when someone would call me a degenerate gambler, I would probably take that term and I'd be like, yeah, you know, there's something wrong with me, right? And it gets down to like, what's wrong with me? What we tend to prefer to do is say, you're a person with a gambling problem. You're a person with a drinking problem because the subtle change there is that you're a person first. And I think that's something for recovery, for people in recovery, people who might be listening to this that have struggled with addiction or in recovery, language matters. It changes our view of ourself. Uh, it's how others view us. But to always call someone in recovery a person first can be the difference between a sustainable recovery and one that returns to uh, you know drug of choice again or a switch. When we use those name-calling problems, it really dehumanizes a person. Absolutely. It's easy to classify through name calling, whether it's racial or whether it's uh, biological. When you wrap a name around it, all of a sudden in people's minds, they can put walls around it and it's easier for them to define. Mike, I call you a degenerate every week, but it's got nothing to do with gambling. <laughs> I'm just a degenerate lifer. <laughs> yes, you're just a degenerate. So what, what do you think those those words would do to somebody with an addiction? You know, I, I think Dan hit the nail on the head. A person with an addiction. Because now, you, now you're making it singular. You're making it that person. Right. You know, I, I think, you know, you can't call him a degenerate gambler or a drunk or, you know, a crackhead because those words are, are really going to hurt. And, and they stick with you. And they stick with it. It becomes yeah. their identity in a way, yeah, exactly. right? Just like yeah. someone who might be living on the streets and a homeless person. Well, maybe it's a person who's temporarily experiencing homelessness. You know, it doesn't right. mean, it doesn't define them as a person, right? And we all go through seasons of our life where things are maybe a little more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit uh, less manageable, but it doesn't define that as a, define them as a person. Some of what the Suffering Podcast is all about is about, you know, rising back up again, like we've talked about right. off air, and, you know, just giving the, the hope and the strength that people need. And, and you know, some people, when they don't understand something, they just like to put labels. Yes. You know, I don't understand, Gam, so you're just a degenerate, let me just move on, right? We see it in every, every facet of life. Right. One of the examples I use about that is, let's say I call Mike Felice a pedophile, and Mike totally exonerates himself. Just like you have totally exonerated yourself from where you were with gambling addiction. Right. Even though he's 100% innocent, are you going to leave your kids with him? There's always that stigma. Yeah, right. you're right. Are, am I going to trust, am I, because of somebody calling you that name, am I going to trust you with my bank account number? Planted the seed of doubt. Correct. That's all you got to do these days. That's right. So, Jim, I really do appreciate that, uh, 
that was a very thoughtful question. I'm, I'm glad we got that out there because I think there's a lot of good meat in there. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I grew up in a house uh, where gambling was normalized. You know, I, I grew up in Union County. I'm a lifelong New Jersey resident and grew up every weekend putting a dollar on the kitchen table with my dad and my brother and picking the games. And for $3, whoever got the most games right, you win 3 bucks, right? You it's get, a little bit more interesting when you throw money into it, right? It, it, you know, that's the thing, right? It got some stake on the game, mm-hmm. right? What's the joy in just watching a Browns-Bengals game unless you got something <laughs> on it? <laughs> so, you know, grew up around gambling where it was normal. And, you know, as, as I've thought about this over years, we would go to the Meadowlands on Friday night. Mammoth racetrack, you know, good time. Love the horses. That was my first love. My first love of gambling was horses. Mm. I was the only kid in seventh grade that had a book on how to um, handicap thoroughbreds. (laughs) (laughs) It was the Andrew Byer speed figures and speed ratings and how to handicap thoroughbred. And people in school, I remember saying, why are you reading that book? And I'd say, why are you not reading this book? Like, this is the book to read. Of course, everyone should do this. Grew up around gambling. was really normal. Played sports. You know, my parents were divorced when I was young. My mom remarried. And had a you know great relationship over the years. Got better with my mom and my stepdad and all. But saw my grandparents. You know, had my brother, had my father. He worked a lot. My brother was older than me. But gambling was something that was kind of like a go-to, something for fun, something to pass time. And is that way, how you connected with your father too? You know, in a way, I think mm-hmm. it was actually. I think when we would go to the Meadowlands or Mammoth or the Haskell, you know, when we're going out, it was like he was working during the week so much. But then on the weekend. That was a time that we could spend together. You know, two of the biggest risk factors for developing any addiction, but specific to gambling, is how early you start and experiencing a big win at an early age. I started when I was like 11. My big win, I did win 20 bucks at the Meadowlands, but I was also spending time with my dad. And, you know, sometimes to a young person, it's spending a win-win. Time, it's a win-win. Yeah. I never saw the negatives. Yeah. You know, I never saw the negatives. Getting money and... Being with your dad. What's the harm? Where I grew up, we saw all the time on the streets in Atlantic City, some of the worst of the worst behavior. I think it affected me at such a young age. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've never gambled, but it kind of made me protect myself a little bit more from gambling because I saw how you can end up where people are begging for money so they can fill their gas tanks to get to get back home. And that's, that's, it's a crazy thought to me. And we're going to get into that, how far down that rabbit hole you can go with gambling. But I do want to hear your thoughts. And you let us in a little bit on your thoughts on the Suffering Podcast. You're a very influential person to me because of where you've been and what you've done. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Suffering Podcast. Yeah, I love, well, when you, when you and I first spoke, and I was thinking about doing a little research, looking into the podcast, I said, this is a great, great concept. You know, taking... People who have struggled and suffered have come down. Life has thrown curveball and fastballs and you're striking out constantly. You pick yourself up, get knocked down. But over time to then take whatever beat you down and now try to use that for good to try to help other people. Suffering allows us to gain perspective. Suffering allows us to appreciate the good times a little bit more. You know, If I don't have suffering or negative, I really can't appreciate when things are good. And we take it for granted. You're we hired. talk about that all the time. If, if, you're if, hired. That, that's one of the main ideas of our show is, is you're not born on the top of the mountain or you're not born with that silver spoon in your mouth. Right. You, you have to go through some kind of suffering yep. to attain the su- success that you have. Right. And, it, and it's a moving target, right? And, and, and it's all relative, right? I can't look at, you know, someone else's success and say, oh, that's going to be my success for my own. I can have a goal. I can certainly do that. But there's also going to be a journey along the way. And, and, and we see a lot of people kind of say, I'll be happy when I get here. I'll be right. happy when. Yeah. And, and just changing that thinking to, I'll be happy even though. Yeah. So even though my day is, I'm going to choose happiness. I'm going to choose joy today, even though there's some struggle. I think people who say that I'll be happy when, I think they're trying to fill a hole with something that's probably probably not going to fill their hole. If they get that big boat or that fancy car, yes. they're still going to be that same person. They're still going to be that same hole. Now it's going to be on to the next thing that they want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they put their, their happiness in, in that material item that they're trying to achieve. And then when they get it, they're like, okay, still got that hole. Now what? What's the next thing? What's now you got the suffering of the payments for that big boat. And the maintenance and all that stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's, that's you, know, you, you know, some some people just love to suffer, I think. You know, you you finally get to that when point, I got my boat. Look at this, I got my boat. Now you got to suffer. Where are you going to dock it? 
you know, where maintenance, where you... winterizing. Oh, it's yeah, it's <laughs> listen, there are big giant holes in the water you throw money into. Well, it's funny you say that because I was I was running a group at the church that I worship at up in Lincoln Park. Wednesday night we'd have a group and there was a gentleman there who was in recovery from opioid addiction. And he said, you know, he's he's worrying less. So he had a lot of fear. Fear of return to use, fear of not getting a job, a lot of fears in life, right? And he's what he found was that worrying and fear kept him from using. And he was afraid to be totally at peace and relaxed because he was afraid that was going to be the point when he returned to start using drugs again. So in a way, for him, worry and fear was healthier than doing drugs. And I never heard it described that way before, but it really made me thinking about that. It really made me think about that. Yeah, that, that, that's great. That's a, a weird thought. It is. It's something, you know, once you wrap your head around it, it's like, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Like that was yeah. keeping him sober. Yeah. Worry and fear. I don't think that's a good strategy, but hey, no. it worked. <laughs> no. <laughs> Whatever works at that point. Yeah. In the beginning, with gambling, is it the same thing as a drug or an alcohol addiction where you do you take the one day at a time? Like, I'm just not going to gamble today. Yeah. Is it that same drive to keep going forward? Yeah. What we realize about gambling, you know, you, you kind of highlighted at the start, you know, there, it is a hidden addiction, right? Yes. You can't see gambling and you can't smell like you an can't alcoholic smell it. you could smell it on them and yeah. all that you give someone a urine screen they're not going to pee dice nothing's coming, <laughs> out of, yeah. nothing's coming out of them you know no track marks bloodshot you know whatever you can't see it you'll see it on the financial statements you'll matter of fact people who called the helpline for 800 gambler if the spouse is calling the wife often thinks the husband's having an affair that's what it really comes out as because he's not around. There's gifts every so often. The money's missing. He's, he's unaccountable for you know, several hours during the evening if he's going down to Atlantic City or somewhere else. So you can't see it. But, you know, addictions have so many similarities because what's They really similar, do. You know, the lying, the cheating, yeah. uh, uh, the preoccupation, the stealing, the continuing despite the negative consequences. You I know? can beat this. I'm stronger than this. Right. You know, and, the chasing. And, yeah. The ch- they chase that high. Yes. I, I've won gambling and it it does give you a rush it's it's a rush and then you just keep trying to chase it and but then i've seen the other side where hey if i just throw this one bet down i can get back to even and yeah. then they just keep that's a heroin addict type of thing where they're just taking a little bit just to get back to normal that happened to me at <clears throat> heroin no oh okay. <laughs> the, the Being one normal? time yeah it happened to me i was normal once <laughs> and that's and it is a one day at a time thing and sometimes you know Quite honestly, it's like one minute at a time. Right. You know, I just can't gamble now. You know, life gets better. Forever is a, such a hard, too vicious much, term. Too much to think about early on, especially for someone who might be in early stages of recovery, whether it's drugs, alcohol, gambling, just to, to think that I'll never be able to do something that I've done for decades. Right. It, it's hard to wrap your brain around that. Yeah. So it's, I'm just not going to gamble today. Correct. And let me get through the day and let me start to create a new life where the gambling no longer fits in. You don't, don't associate with those people. Don't go to those places, right? People, places, and things. It goes with everything from food, drugs, to gambling. Yes. You change your lifestyle. You have to. And that's the only way of true recovery, I guess. 100%. But you have done something that is really, the, in my opinion, the path to true recovery is you've taken that suffering and moved it forward and helping others now. But I'm sure it wasn't always like that. I know you've gone through a, this a lot of suffering, and I'd like you to tell our audience your greatest suffering story. Yeah, I I, I think it kind of wraps over a several year period because it was a, a prolonged suffering. You know, I had I had gambled as a youth growing up, and then played baseball uh, in high school. I was getting scouted by the the uh, Cincinnati Reds and the Philadelphia Phillies junior year of high school. Yes, you know. Yes, I knew. I knew Dan and us. Dan and I were. Well, well Craig Carton was a backup third baseman for the Phillies. For yeah, years. That's, that's what he used to tell everybody. <laughs> he says a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Craig. I know we never met you, but we're breaking your chops. It's, it's, my bad. You will meet soon, hopefully. <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm getting scouted, and my show. I was a pitcher, lefty pitcher. Didn't do the things that I should have been doing to keep my arm healthy and, and strong. And so I thought I knew everything as a 17-year-old. You don't know, we all? Athlete. We always, we know everything. We know everything. I don't have to listen to anybody. Adults are stupid at that age. Right. What do they know? I'd rather go down the shore with my friends in the summertime instead of putting in the work. Right. And so, predictably, my arm gave out, rotator cuff damage, never a surgery, but damage. And all that good stuff potentially went away. Ended up going to uh, Trenton State College at the time. Right. Uh, now the College of New Jersey. College of New Jersey. Yep. I played uh, one month in fall ball, and I remember in fall ball, I'm, I'm pitching, I'm a lefty. First five batters uh, that I faced all hit home runs off me. <laughs> Coach said, come here, Dan. Let me have the hat. We don't need you anymore. 
Really? And that was the end of my baseball career. Wow. Something I had done for years, playing baseball. Loved wow. Playing. I loved baseball. The coach let you go like that? Yep. Because I was already kind of on the on the fence, yeah. knowing that I was kind of a damaged arm, and they competed Division three, but they are really strong Division three program. We played them in football, and they were always competitive. Program. Yeah, yeah. good competitive program. So I went and became a personal trainer for a couple of years uh, in college, make ends meet, but I wasn't gambling at that point. You know, I didn't gamble from the time I got out of high school for a number of years because I had created a new life where it no longer fit in. Graduated Trenton State with finance and economics uh, degree, started working at a, a small little investment bank named Goldman Sachs <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming out of college. In a small little place. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I, I, I may have heard of him once. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that kind of led to the, to the suffering because, you know, I, I was working downtown on September 11th. And, you know, I remember going to work that day. Because I remember the night before it was a rainy day. It was raining. It was at the Yankee game that night. The game got rained out. Came home, watched the Giants-Broncos on Monday Night Football. And I believe Ed McCaffrey may have broken his leg in that game. And so the next morning I wake up, sunny, beautiful day. I go down, go to work, sitting in my office, you know, looking out the window. And, you know, it, it's, I remember seeing the second plane hit the, hit the towers. Holy cow. And I just, you can't really, I can't put myself back. It's, what, you know, what's going on? Like, you know, you just think it's a mistake, you know, right. you think it's a mistake. Before you know it, it's, um, you know, you're running downtown. I was about a quarter mile east. I was closer to the uh, Battery Park. Mm-hmm. I run with my my um, supervisor at the time, his wife was in the tower. She, she died that day. And, you know, we're just running around and you're seeing just mayhem, chaos. Mm-hmm. I lost a bunch of friends in that. And, you know, I'd lost probably around 14 friends on September 11th. And just getting home that day, it was just mayhem and chaos. I remember, and, the, I remember the video of the people waiting <clears throat> by the docks to take a, have yes. a ferry and yeah. just people walking over the bridges. Yes. It, it was crazy. It, it, there was one point where when the, when the tower, when the first tower fell, the smoke that was because the wind was blowing east over the Brooklyn Bridge that day, the smoke enveloped the building I was in and you could just hear people running and they couldn't see the clear glass and you just heard bodies like hitting the glass and... I saw things that I wish I never saw before. I got back and, and I realized over the next several weeks when I was working remotely from home that I went back to gambling during that time. The September 11th was, was the trigger that sent me back to the thing I hadn't done in probably seven years. I used that's it. A, that's an <clears throat> odd way to deal yeah. with such a tragedy. I'm not saying it's, it, it's a, it makes perfect sense the way you're describing it because yeah. y- you have this emptiness inside of you because of you just saw something you shouldn't say it was my safe place Correct. i was gonna say it, it's it's probably your safe place and it reverts you back to your childhood when you were safe when you were doing that little gambling with your father yeah you know at the racetrack and like we said before it was a win-win you know you getting to spend time with your father and making money i never now, saw the negatives it, yeah. it just now now after after 9-11 like you know i, I went through a traumatic incident and i kind of reverted back to my childhood I found myself passing my childhood house all the time. Yeah. I just wanted to get myself back to that yeah. when life was innocent. Simple. I, I've heard that about alcohol too. Yeah. Alcohol is not, alcoholism is not the problem. It's usually the cause of some other root problem. If all these addictions have these similar characteristics, it makes perfect sense. And I've never thought of it that way. And, and it, yeah, it's one of those like click aha uh-huh moments. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I have them occasionally when I, my brain's working properly. Well, they always talk about you know people people drink, drug, gamble. They, you, you, you do these things for one of two reasons: you either do it for action or for escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you just said something. The root problem. You know, one of the I have the privilege of speaking around the country, and we'll talk about that later on. And one of the one of the talks that I do is about the you know the disease of addiction. And if you break the word disease down, it's a dis ease. There's something not at ease mm-hmm. within the individual. And it could be fear, it could be pain, it could be something that's going on. So they're drowning out that fear or that pain with drugs, with alcohol, right? With gambling. With gambling. Because the action in gambling is real. And then and then it allows you to escape. You know, Craig said one time, you, you're almost in a cocoon. You know, just this little cocoon that's safe, that you can have that safe space where there's a good time and it associates with peacefulness. And it's easy because with gambling, you also, it's not about the winning, it's just about staying in action, uh, keeping that mental block. You know, and it's, you're reinforced every so often and the brain loves it. You produce the dopamine mm-hmm. and all of a sudden that be, anchors your learning. So now all of a sudden I'm going to use gambling as that safe place. And for the next nine years from 2001 until February 11th, 2010, which is the day of my last bet, I gambled practically every day, every day in some capacity. And most of it was illegally done online before it was ever approved wow. and legalized. What was your game of choice? I started... 
as a sports gambler. Okay. I would bet football only. But oh, then football's no, no better rush there. I, I mean, it's football. It's college and pro. When football season was over, I'd be like, okay, well, now what am I going to do? Because I've been doing this for the last four months, so now I've established this pattern, right, mm-hmm. this habit. And it was small scale, a few dollars here and there, and maybe some parlays, some teasers. It was nothing really big. But like any addiction, your tolerance increases over time. So the $5 bet no longer gives me the same rush. Now it's got to be 10 Now it's got to be 20 Just like exercise. You know, when you work out all the time, your muscles get stronger. You need to put more weight on to grow your muscle. Well, same thing for addiction. I needed to do it more frequently, more often for higher dollar amounts. And then I started playing blackjack online. I started setting up slot machines that would autoplay for me when I had to go to work. So when I would come home, I would look and see if I won anything. And I never did. Auto slots. Wow. Auto slots. Illegal offshore sites. so dangerous. Yep. God, I can't tell you how much sense this makes to me that you're dealing with this this tragedy of 9-11 and it brings you back to this safe spot of you. You keep going down this rabbit hole. How big were the bets? Did they? You said they kept increasing. Yeah. So where, where did they start getting out of control? It started getting out of control. I could see like the first little ding was when I had to start taking loans from my 401k. And so, you know, you're betting all of a sudden now $100 a hand on blackjack. Right. $250 a hand on blackjack was the highest I, I ever went using my own money. I think that's when it starts to really lead to the suffering is when you start draining the bank account. When I was married at the time, not more, not married anymore, just living that double life, mm-hmm. I think is the best way to say, you know, I was fairly active in the church. I grew up in the church with my grandparents. They were a really strong influence. But when you're struggling with addiction, going to church, it's a really, it's hard to wrap your head around that. Is like going to church kind of putting you in denial about your gambling addiction? Because on the outward appearances, yeah, you're look, married, you got guy. a church. He's, he's going hey, to church. He's got a great job. Yep, yep. Looking the sharp. Pictures. Yep. Uh, you know, I never forget there was another guy I was talking, because I, I love talking with people who struggle with addiction all the time. That's where I feel most comfortable. Guy was saying, you know, look at this picture, Dan. And he was showing, he was at a homeless shelter down in Trenton, Trenton Rescue Mission. And he's like, look at that picture on the wall. So I look at the picture and he says, it's a lake with a, you know, lake house, mountains in the background. Pretty picture, right? I said, yeah. He goes, that used to be the picture I used to show everyone. But what people couldn't see was the demons battling me. You can't see on the outside of that frame if there's a storm brewing in the distance. And I said, that's very true. And he said, we always put these facades up. Mm -hmm. You know, we show people what we want them to see. You know, the, the per- Facebook profile. Facebook life. 100%. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're going through a divorce. You're, you're, you're struggling with drug addiction. You're struggling with gambling addiction, the hidden addiction. How do you know How do you know a marriage is in trouble? Because they'll tell you how great everything's going on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, social media, people tend to post more frequently and more often as they're struggling with different areas. Yes. 100%. So that's one area I think that social media could be a big service to somebody struggling with some sort of an addiction because it, the problem is honesty. So at what point, where was the rock bottom on this? <clears throat> the rock bottom, I would like to say it was on February 11th, 2010. And I've thought about this in the past. You know, was it the day that I was caught and found out? Because I, I spent 20 months when I was, I, I had left Goldman Sachs in the city in 2003. I couldn't work in the city anymore. Uh, my, my health wasn't good. Mentally, I wasn't, I wasn't well mentally, although I did not know it at the time. I thought because I was alive, I must be fine. Mm-hmm. But mental health is so important. Something we talk about so much more now than we did 20 years ago. Yes. Simone Biles just brought <clears throat> it up last week. Yeah. And she, and you know what? She had to do what was best for her. Yep, absolutely. And and that was a decision that, that she made for her and, and that, that was for her mental health. And I was had tremendous respect for her for doing that on the, on the largest stage. And 20 years ago, probably wouldn't have seen that done. But- I think my biggest point of suffering, like that that rock bottom point, was after 20 months of taking illegal monies from clients. When I was a financial planner at Prudential, I stole money from my clients. And was it easy, or you just knew how to work the system? It was. I had built the trust. You know, uh, people who struggle with addiction are really good at at lying. Mm. They're good at gaining trust. They're good at telling you what you want to hear. You know, you just get that buy-in. You get that trust. And I would tell people, listen, I've got a good investment idea for you. Make the check payable to me. And they would. It was, I mean, it was nothing dramatic. It was, it was building trust. You know, I look back and I just shake my head because I remember the first check I ever took in June of 2008 was the hardest one because that's the point you're crossing that line. After that, I imagine, Hey, I've done it before. Uh, You justify it. Once you do something the first time you could justify it in your head. And so I was caught February 11, 2010, but my rock bottom point was definitely sentencing day before I went off to prison. Because I remember just hearing the judge 
put that gavel down with the final decision and then having the handcuffs as you're escorted away, as your support and your friends and your family are sitting in the courtroom watching you go away. It's got to be like a bad man. dream. I, I tell you what, that was, uh, that was hard. Because I think about September 11th. I think about sentencing. You know, I think about being caught and spending five hours in front of uh, an agent and my compliance team and upper management at Prudential. I mean, I've had a number of ones that rival but I think that's the one, like losing freedom. Well, you had you were no different than an alcoholic working in a liquor store, right? Because your addiction relies heavily on finances. Yeah, and you're having you, you're in a financial field. Yep. So, wow. Yeah. God, what a that was a dangerous situation. Like certain jobs fuel were the addiction. Hundred percent. Yeah. You shouldn't let an alcoholic work in a liquor store. Someone who struggles with drug addiction shouldn't be working in the pharmacy, right? right? And, and you know, there's certain jobs we're just not meant to do. And but do you think that was the draw to the financial field, or are you, just, are you just a numbers guy? I've always been a numbers guy. And that's what's – so it's interesting. You know, it's almost like the chicken and the egg. Yeah. Was, was I a numbers guy because I started gambling at an early age? Because when you're 12, you don't know what you want to do when you grow up yet. But I love numbers. Now, my, my family, my brother, my father, accountant background, mm-hmm. so it kind of runs in the family. And I've always been very quick with numbers. As, a, as someone who gambles, that did come in handy at times, too. Right. Sure did. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> made it easier for you. Listen, all you got to do is read that book. Uh, they made a movie about it. It's about the MIT uh, Blackjack oh, Club. Oh, yes. yes. Which I read it more as a math book. Okay. That's, that's, I, I am attracted to the abilities that these kids have, not so much the gambling portion sure. of it. Although even they, these incredibly smart numbers guys, even they get hooked into the gambling aspect, the money aspect of it, the lifestyle. But these were brainiacs playing brain games. Right. Because right. they're all numbers guys. And number being a numbers guy fits very well into gambling because if you can figure out the odds, all of a sudden you got an edge. Yeah, you're always looking for any type of slight edge you can get. And, and you know, that's the crazy thing about gambling. <laughs> the odds are in the house's favor. Yeah. I mean, and every always, game every you play, time. it's always in the house's favor. Yet you continue to do this thing where you know over long periods of time you're going to lose. Right. And, and, and a gambler Thinking will... you're going to be the one that beats it though. Exactly. Yeah. That's why Vegas is Vegas. Right, you know, that's why they build those buildings. The huge hotels there. The $2 because... lobster, you think that lobster costs $2? <laughs> no. I used to work with uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, friends used to, uh, at the council where I just uh, finished working after seven years, trained me. He would go to Atlantic City many times for those $500 hot dogs. You know, that's what we say. It's not free. It's a five, that hot dog costs me $500. Feeding you drinks. There's no clocks. I used to look at the layout of a casino. I've yeah. been going to a casino since I was probably 14 years old. As a matter of fact, there is once where I was, I think I was 17 sitting in a slot machine and I get a tap on the back of my shoulder figure and I'm caught. I turn around and it's Donald Trump and Marla Maples. No kidding. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Marla Maples, wow. That's wow. all I got to tell you. Wow. <laughs> but they're... Here I am, the owner of the casino, and I'm 17 and I'm shitting my pants. <laughs> They're like, hey, he says, hey, how, how's, how's the, I'm like, wonderful. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Thank you. <laughs> and, and when he walked away, I just remember wiping the sweat off my forehead. But I'm going to tell you this, and this, this is where the dangerous portion gets in. I just got away with something. Yeah. Oh, that was something else. That was a now feeling. Now I'm here to stay. Wow. Yep. Yep. That was something good. That was a gamble too. I mean, that was a risk. You know, but, we take risks every day. But then as I started getting older and having to work really hard for my money, that's where the gambling did not fit into my lifestyle. Got it. Because anytime I dropped money on a table or dropped money in a machine, I'm like, yeah, I just, I, that was just a day's worth of pay that I put in there. Yeah. You know, and I, I started getting to it before when I, when I was 18 years old, a friend of mine says, let's bet on a football game. We bet a five-timer on a football game, $25, you know, never thinking to lose. I lost. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that feeling of so loss was probably now, rough. Now I'm thinking I'm going to get my knees broken. You know, <laughs> you know, Uncle Guido's going to come down and take my knees out. <laughs> so my friend says to me, let's bet another five-timer on a four o'clock game. Yes. Then you'll only be out $5. Never thinking if I lose that, I'm out 60 bucks. <laughs> and I didn't have the $30. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. I bet with my heart, I bet with the Giants back then. Mm. Big mistake. They, yeah. Yeah. I had to watch till the final minute of the game. The Giants wound up pulling it out and covering. Wow. So, so I only lost a couple bucks. I'm, I will never gamble again. It's, I, I didn't enjoy football. You know, I, I didn't enjoy watching the game, nothing. I sat on the edge of my seat the whole time watching the game. Now, on a lower level, you getting that gavel coming down and slamming, where you almost lost everything, 
what little you had. It's all relative. Like you said in the beginning, it's perspective. It's all relative. Your $500 versus that gavel coming down. Was that what addicts call a moment of clarity for you? Or was it prior to that? I think the moment of clarity would have been when I was kind of found out, you know, when the veil was pulled. You're like, oh, shit. Back when I was uh, I was called into the office, uh, you know, my managing director on that February 11th, 2010. Hmm. They said, we need you to come down to our office. Uh, we got some questions for you. And when someone's struggling with addiction and not living life the right way, you don't want to answer questions. Mm. When someone says, I got some questions, you're not in a rush to go answer them. Especially from your supervisors. You're, you're yeah. Facade, yeah, the facade is there for a reason, but it, it's a very thin veneer. Yes, and very thin. And, and actually, three months previous to that, I had a knock at the door in 2009, living up in uh, Bergen County. Had a knock at the door middle of the afternoon on a Tuesday. And I look out the window, and there's two people standing on the front steps, dressed relatively nicely, and holding a clipboard. And I just thought they were like telemarketers, Verizon, cable vision, whatever. Verizon. I opened the door, hey, get the hell out of here. And it was actually the IRS. They were agents, not telling me to file my tax returns, but they had a, a, a gun on the waist and they had a chain around there. So they're federal agents. They said, "We want to ask you some questions about some money laundering." And I had never been convicted of money laundering, but whenever you're gambling illegally offshore. You fund those accounts via credit card. And the description of the credit card transaction couldn't say gambling because it was against uh, law back then. It would come back as saying camera equipment. So it looks as if I had over a million dollars of camera equipment somewhere in my possession. So the guy, it's a hell of a studio. It's a hell of a studio. So they, they, they asked me a few questions and I refused to answer. I said, I'm going to retain counsel. Before he left, the guy turns around and he says, you either have a lot of camera equipment, which I don't think you do, or you have a really bad gambling problem. And he saw it. 2009. He was the first person that really called me out. I got so angry. And he was so right. I got so angry. That's probably why you were angry, because he was right and you knew he was right. 100%. How dare you accuse me of that? And meanwhile, he's right. And that was that that first crack. And then when I was found out, February 11, 2010, for five hours, I sat in a room and I just, there was this simultaneous worry and fear because I knew what the next several years was going to bring. But there's also a sense of relief. I no longer had to carry this heavy weight that had led to shingles when I was 30, 33 years old, you know, just constant stress, anxiety. I just kind of released it all. Wow. Told them everything I had done. The stress and the anxiety of like, when is that other foot going to drop? Well, you surrender. When am I going to get caught? When am I going to get caught? It's a matter of time, but I don't know another way out because I owe now a lot of money to a lot of people. And I don't know another way to make this money back because it's a substantial amount of money. And I don't know life without gambling. Like it, it was like eating and breathing. Yeah. Like that was my breath. You get that weight off of your shoulders. Yeah. It's amazing because that to me looking on the outside seems to be the bottom. But to me, that's when you start crawling out of the hole. Yeah. And, you know, over time, I've had time to think about that. While I'm able to get the weight off of my shoulders, what I think goes overlooked or not talked about enough is now that weight has to get transferred to someone else, the loved ones, the family members, the ones who support. The real victims. Let me tell you, the real victims. You're 100% right. Because now where I feel better, I've now transferred that weight. It's got to go somewhere. So now it's, it's, it's your wife, your mom, your dad, your kids, your grandparents. The, the amount of people impacted by addiction, you know, we always talk about the person who's struggling with addiction needs to go through recovery. Yeah, that's all fine and good. And yes, they need to get well, but we also have to have resources and support for the loved ones. That's where our, so we start recently started a nonprofit and our nonprofit is dealing with first responders and any suffering that they go through, but we also have extended it to their families Great. because there's help for us. There's help in the troubles and the trials that we go through, but there's not a whole lot of resources for them. There might be one or two support groups, but there's not the resources that we have. Right. They're the real hidden victims in this. Yes. What kind of impact did that have in your life? Yeah. I mean, that led to divorce, right. you know, years later. Um, you know, I, after everything came out on February 11, 2010, the next 18 months, I was kind of in a, in a suspended period of life because I couldn't move forward, couldn't really get any gainful, meaningful employment, certainly not in the work I'd been doing yeah. in finance because, you know, who's Who, going to... Who's going to hire you now? The, right. No one. And, and I was barred from the industry. I actually, this year was actually the first year I could reapply after 10 years if I wanted to get my securities license back, which I have zero desire. It's just not a lifestyle that works for me. I was sentenced to six-year state prison on August 19th, 2011. 
And I remember that was another hard day. You know, the, the day before telling my twins at the time, dad's got to go on a business trip. And I don't know how long I'll be gone for. And I'd rather have my arms cut off than not see my kids. That was the hardest part. You know, spending from August 19th, 2011 until I, I only, I spent eight months because I'd qualified for a supervised release program because it was a nonviolent crime, first offense. It wasn't first degree. I uh, qualified for supervised release, which I was on for the next 37 months. And it was a, you had to have a curfew. You had to, you know, there was a whole bunch of restrictions and, and. But at that point, anything is in jail. I don't care. It's better than prison. (laughs) It's better than prison. You know, it it comes back to that perspective again. Being sentenced, being in the back of of, of a wagon going down state, getting processed through Central Reception Facility in Trenton, being in an eight by 10 cell with a blood from Patterson on his third bid down state for assault. Everyone's housed all together, and then they kind of farm you out to your final destination. I went to uh, minimum security because it was nonviolent. So you're in Trenton State. So you're in there with people like, wasn't Kuklinski in there? Yeah. Well, I mean, Iceman. Iceman was in. Yeah. It, so think about where you are. I want yeah. everybody to start thinking about this. Where you have a, it's not a victimless crime, but it's a nonviolent crime. Where you're in there with a guy who reportedly killed 200 people. Yeah, everyone gets processed through the same channels. And then um, people who commit very severe crime obviously go to maximum security wing. But there's a period of time where you're getting processed. And, you know, one of the things I think was, it was almost like a decision point early on. I happened to be down in Kraft, which is the central reception facility, on the 10th anniversary of September 11th, right? Mm. That was 2011. And I'm down there with a with a gentleman. This is the blood from Patterson, uh, and and we became friends. But there was this particular day, which is very sensitive to me, September 11th. And he looks at the news and he says, "Ah, oh, you know, it's conspiracy. You know, this never happened. You know." And I snapped, and I got right in his face. And I'm six one. He was about five foot six, so I'm seven inches taller than him. And I got in his face, and he was cool and calm. And he looked at me. He says, "What do you want to do?" And I said, you know, F you, you know, how dare you, blah, blah, blah. He said, it's all right. I said, I'm tired of arguing with you about this stuff. He goes, we're not arguing. He says, we're disagreeing. He goes, it's okay to disagree with people. But when you start arguing, he goes, if we were arguing, I would have already broken your arm and you would have been on the floor. He says, so don't ever get in my face again. (laughs) And at that moment, I had this. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Point well taken. Point well taken. But he taught me the difference between arguing and disagreeing. It's okay to disagree with people. You You don't have to see things the same way. There's everybody out there can teach everybody something. 100%. And I learned that day. (laughs) Being seven inches taller than someone doesn't matter. (laughs) So that discussion you had with your new Patterson friend, we don't like to call them disagreements. We like to call them an exchange of thoughts. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was an exchange of thoughts. Well said. Well an exchange said. of thoughts. My wife and I apparently exchange thoughts frequently. We no longer argue. We exchange thoughts. I like that. It's amazing that here's a guy who seems like he's been going down a bad path for quite some time. And yep. there he is teaching you these little pearls of wisdom. And yet we can learn from each other if we're just willing to. And that's the thing. I, I, I love... I love learning from others as much as I hope people love learning from me. And it's, it's the exchange of thoughts, the exchange, exchange of, of ideas, thoughts, thoughts. you know, it, it, it's wonderful when we're, when we're open-minded right. and, and having perspective to see different things and people bring their own baggage with them everywhere they go. And some of the things in that bag can be helpful for me and I'd love to learn. And that's why I, I love talking to people because I love learning from people. I love right. hearing about their journey. You know, Kevin, Kevin says it all the time on here. This, this is like the greatest education we ever got doing this podcast because mm. we're learning so many different I've picked things up three, so many different people. Three or four new things that you just told me, just a different way of looking at things. Yeah. And I've learned not to get married to my opinions because people will come at me with certain things and I'll, just give them that look like, and my mind will actually go blank because I'm trying to process what they just said. Yes. And I was, wow, that was really good. You have not placed a bet since, what was it, February 11, 2010. Yep. You over. have not placed a bet. Yep. You didn't just stop being an addict. No. There has to be something to fill that void. Yeah. I mean, always. I mean. Coffee. Uh, coffee. Coffee. You know, <laughs> work. You know, <laughs> you know, one day at a time is, is always the motto for addiction recovery. You know, it, I heard it described one time that, in recovery, the addiction switch doesn't go off. It's always on. Right. You know, once that switch is on, it's on. And it's a matter of managing it. And channeling that addiction. Yeah, because there's certain personality traits 
that lend themselves to addiction. Yeah, you'll hear that, you know, oh, they have an addictive personality. It's not not necessarily an addictive personality. It doesn't really exist. But there are certain personality traits, risk-taking, competitiveness, drive to succeed. Stop. You're giving giving my wife weapons to use. Stop. She doesn't listen to this. No, yeah, this is true. But you, that's why I consider myself an addict. Yeah. Okay, I have to focus my attention on whether it's exercise, because if I don't, if I don't focus on the good things, on the positive things, there's something that's going to fill that void. Right, balance. And balance is key, because, you know, some of the areas that I filled, like I went back to cooking. I love to cook. As a... Doing triathlon, 18-year right. triathlete competing at all different distances, and therefore I like to eat. So cooking seems logical. Right. Exercise, mm-hmm. uh, work. And and, and do I, I get skewed a little bit, off balance? Absolutely. And trying to recenter mm-hmm. yourself. But I think one of, the, one of the great, I guess, pieces of recovery is the ability to slow down and be able to sit peacefully without worry and fear. You know, Craig talks about it a lot on our on our show. He talks about how much mental space is gained in recovery, how much mental freedom, because you're not preoccupied with thinking about when am I going to do this? How am I going to get the money? Where is it going to go next? You spend hours thinking about your addiction every day. It's a relationship. And not having that relationship frees up so much time. It, it makes me a happier person. It shifts perspective. And that's a word I use a lot. Well, the, the one that always helped me is – I'll. I have all these different thoughts going on in my head, and if I don't write them down, they will consume me. Yes. So I write lists. And what that, what that list allows me to do is it allows me to drop it from my head, give me a little bit of peace, and put it to the side, knowing that it's going to be there to pick up when I want to pick it up. That's my little – 100%. That's my help. I write stuff down all the time because I, I – just the way you said it, Kevin, it's get, get it out of here – Put it so I can see it when I want to look at it. Right. Plus, I can look at them one at a time instead of having all seven of them jumbled around in my head. But that's part of the one day at a time keeping your world small philosophy. And, and keeping life simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to simplify. And we were kind of joking around uh, you know, off air. <laughs> more stuff. More stuff, right? right? Having all these things. It's just more stuff to worry about. Yeah. It's more stuff that exactly. consumes you. And what I've found for me over time is that my joy and happiness is not dependent upon the stuff I have. I, I don't have a big social media presence I don't, in terms of Instagram and Facebook. I choose not to because I want to live a life of compassion, not one of comparison. And that's just a personal choice that I've made over time. And that's what social media is all about. It's comparison. All comparing mm-hmm. yourself to everybody Envy, else. Envy, comparison, mm-hmm. wanting what someone else has or wanting them to lose what they have so you're equal again. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Too. But you, what kind of help did you receive? Was it, was it when you were away in prison? Did you get your help or did you see more of it when you got out? Yeah, I started, I started seeking help from the 12-step uh, fellowship of uh, Gamblers Anonymous, actually, at the time. And I, and I, and I share that. Uh, I was going to the meetings at the time, but I wasn't going for the right reasons. The whole reason I started getting help for my addictions, I thought it would look good before sentencing. So from 2010 to 2011, I wanted to do whatever would look good so I would get the lightest sentence possible. You were a dry were, were you, drunk. Yeah. Were you, were you still gambling at that point? I was not because it was after it was after February 11, 2010. I wasn't gambling, but I also wasn't living a, a good, healthy, healthy life. life. Yeah. You know, I was I was bartending. I probably started drinking a little bit more than I should have because of the stress of going to prison. I was had access to the alcohol behind the bar. And you meet these friends. Oh, you know, let's do a shot together and stuff like that. So there was a little season there before going off to prison that was really 18 months of just having – you're just suspended in time. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. But I did start getting help in the rooms. And, and for me, getting back involved with my church, finding a good, strong church – helping to facilitate a recovery group on Wednesday nights that I did for two to three years for people just struggling with all types of addiction to let people know that we're human. We're people first. Did we say, was that your segue into this 1-800-GAMBLER life that you got into? Yeah, great. I mean, that's a great question because when I had come out of prison and I was on supervised release, I was reading, you know, people used to read the newspaper. So the Bergen record up in North Jersey, Mm -hmm. I open it up one day and I see an ad for a gambling counselor in Westwood. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I need a job because I'm working all these little tiny jobs now. I need a job. I know gambling. I like to help people. Maybe I could be a gambling counselor. And so I call the guy up and he says, he goes, I don't know the process. Call this guy down at the council on compulsive gambling. He'll tell you how the whole thing works. And the guy's name was Jeff Beck. 
and not Jeff, the guitars, not the, guitar not the guitars, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's a joke he would always make. <laughs> <laughs> I would have him stick with the fact, yes, that yes, is me. Yes, that, that's me. <laughs> and, and Jeff, I met Jeff for lunch one day. He, I shared my story with him. He shared his story with me and he said, we have a meeting in Patterson. We run every Monday night up at Eva's village. He goes, why don't you come with me? And I started just getting together with Jeff on Monday nights, doing a meeting. And he became a mentor. He, when some uh, position became available at the council for part-time, they hired me part-time August of 2014. And then by December 15th of 2014, they gave me a full-time offer and it felt really good because at an entry level, I was able to go around to schools, go into drug and alcohol facilities, wherever there was a need, I was able to talk about gambling addiction. There's no greater recovery than paying it forward. 100%. And you can't do it too soon though, right? We we hear all the time about people being two-steppers, right? I, <laughs> I admit I have a problem, now let me help someone else. Yeah. You've got to, I mean, I took a lot of, I took a, and I continue to take years working on, it took you know. Me seven years till I was comfortable helping others. It takes with, a while. With, the, with this show anyway. You know, emotional awareness, you know, realizing what's going on. I actually went back and got my master's in psychology while I was on supervised release because I wanted to learn more about me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and trauma and how trauma lives in our body and has no voice. And it comes out in many different ways. I remember driving down the highway one time and there was a truck fire on the side of the road. And as I drove past, the smell of the truck fire reminded me of September 11th. Because that was the same smell. And in a second, my heart rate spiked. My the hairs on my arm started standing up. I got really anxious. And that's trauma. And and how to process that. I mean, it's taken years and it continues. So you did a great thing because Mike and I are, I don't want to say experts in trauma, yeah. in trauma, but we identify now because we've been through it so many times that when we get in those situations where you're smelling those certain things, because we still smell it from the night of our shootings where you'll smell certain things and it'll bring you back. And all of a sudden you'll have a flashback. Yeah. The more you expose yourself to those things, the easier they become. They never go away. But if you have a reference point and some sort of education on what to expect, it becomes a little bit easier. Since you have left this world of gambling and entered in the back end of the world of gambling, (laughs) the recovery end, have you been able to go into a casino or be near it? So yeah, I, we do uh, trainings for the operators. So if we're doing staff trainings before COVID, we'd go in person down to Atlantic City. I've done trainings in New Mexico. I, so I do do work around the country and I have, and it's, I create my barriers. So I always tell people, you know, I'm a gambler in recovery, February 11, 2010. If you see me on the casino floor later tonight, take me outside and beat the hell out of me. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, but I, but I do put barriers. Like I will not stay at a casino. I I just, I, I don't go to Vegas. There's no need to. Yes, there are conferences. Yes, the, the opportunity might come up in the near future. And if so, then I bring somebody with me. Right. Because you, you've got to create these barriers. I don't feel the urge to gamble because I know where it's led me. But it doesn't mean that I'm cured. It doesn't Absolutely. mean that I'm totally immune. It could happen at any time. With somebody with an addiction, is never cured. Correct. What, never cured. What's it like watching like an NFL game now or a college game? Wow. I mean... It's it's really transitioned in the last eleven years. Like, I couldn't watch sports. Like I grew up loving sports. I couldn't watch sports for like a good year, two years. I couldn't read you the had newspaper. No, you had no stake in the game, and I just I, I was afraid it would be a trigger. I I didn't even know how to read a newspaper correctly anymore because I was always looking for like weather. And I'd, re- I'd look at the weather just to see if the wind's blowing out in Wrigley. Maybe that's going to be an over. It's going to be a high-scoring game. Let me put money on that, right? I, I didn't watch sports for a while. But then over time, I started getting comfortable just rooting for my teams. I'm a Yankees guy. I'm a Giants guy. Oh, okay. no. Oh, <laughs> Let's go. It's about time we got one of those in here. <laughs> Come on. Listen, I've been, you mentioned you're, you got looked at by the Phillies, and I thought we were going to be friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, nah, listen, hey, some of my greatest – some of my – very, very good friends are Yankees fans and Giants fans. and <laughs> But it's it's really changed now with sports betting. So since sports betting was legalized in the state in 2018, you can't watch a game without seeing odds. I'm, yeah. I'm very thankful I'm not gambling these days because the opportunity and the ability is just unbelievable. With COVID and the lockdown, yeah, geez. That, yeah. What that, else? That, that's one of the things I was talking to Kevin about earlier this week. And, and I know alcoholics have to watch beer ads on TV and all that stuff. Being in, re- in recovery from gambling... 
What's it like for you now with like FanDuel and BetMGM and all that stuff? Oh, they give you $100 just for signing yeah, up. Yeah, just for yeah. yeah, they, yeah $100 if one, I just heard it the other day. $100 if one American wins a medal at the at the right. Olympics. Oh, it's it's $100 if someone throws a pitch in tonight's game. Yeah. If throws a strike, if someone swings the bat, you know, it's it's the marketing ads. We just actually talked about it. You know, it, it, the ease and accessibility, it's for someone in early recovery, I would imagine it's very difficult because it's constantly being marketed. You know, I took steps to kind of protect myself. And what I help people and encourage people to do is to sign up for voluntary self-exclusion. The state of New Jersey does offer the ability for you to block yourself from online gambling. So final, though. That's a tough thing for an addict, ask an addict to do. And and they have different windows. You could do it for one year. You could do it for three years. You could do it for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. But if you do it for a lifetime, you've got to go in person because that's a commitment. That's the they, that's the forever the forever thing. The only way off that is to die. I mean, and you're gone anyway. So <laughs> there's, you know, that's that's essentially for the gambler, the only, the only options there. You know, but voluntary self-exclusion, it stops the marketing of ads to your email, it doesn't allow you access to play those games, but they're still consuming it through TV. So for someone in early recovery, it's a challenge. For someone who's thinking, oh, this might be fun, it, it, it's luring in new people. Now, I want to be very clear. The agency 800 Gambler is neither for nor against gambling. We're neutral on gambling. We only want to help the problem gambler and the loved ones. Me, I'm neutral on gambling for other people. If you want to gamble, knock yourself out. It's a form of entertainment. I'm against it for me. I know I can't gamble because I don't have a healthy relationship with how I think about it, with how I do it. But I've, I've, I have a lot of friends who gamble. They know not to invite me to Atlantic City or to Vegas. There's a healthy respect there. We do that on this show. So one of our sponsors is Hackensack Brewing Company. And from time to time, we'll have an alcoholic on here. And I will keep those ads away because it's just not proper it's not right. right we are we will be running this week our ad for a sports bet but that's that's something different though right <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, only joking. I'm only joking once they heard dan was coming on they started throwing offers at me i couldn't turn them yeah. down well, kevin wanted to do this remote from down in lenox city I yeah don't, no, that's, that's <laughs> bad or bring some cars out and while we're waiting for the show to start bring, see how really recovered you are let's test them yeah let's test them <laughs> But it's, it sounds like you're doing so good, and you've got this amazing story, and I think your story gives people hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Mike was so kind to bring a couple T-shirts to me today, and you're not alone, and there's light at the end of the tunnel because you've gone through it, which means somebody else can go through it. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, if you have – if we think of ourselves as kind of like a, a vessel carrying a lot of stuff, you know, light shines through a cracked vessel. If you have something that's never been cracked and it's perfect – you put a light in there, it's not shining through because there's no cracks, can't get out. But when that vessel gets cracked and tossed around a little bit and gets damaged and cracks form, the light will shine through. And that's one of the areas that I always think about because I, a, a good friend of mine at the church had said that and that always stuck with me. Yes, we've been cracked. You know, none of us are perfect. We're dented. That's we're how dented. We we're we cracked. Call it, we call it dented. We're dented. We're dented, but we're not broken. We're, we're dented, but not broken. We can still operate. We're just not as pretty as we used to be. <laughs> <laughs> but that light shines because you, you have to instill hope. You know, for, for the person who struggles with addiction, there is hope. You know, there are better days ahead if you if you can find your strength to admit that there's something you're struggling with because it's humbling. It's humbling. It, it's humbling. It's spe- going through that dark tunnel. Yeah. Waiting for that light to come. Yeah. You know, it's it's a long process. It, it's And it's it's lonely, too. Yeah. It, that, that's the it's thing. It's a lonely road. Addiction's lonely. You know, it's isolating. It's lonely. You feel like you're alone. There's no one else that can relate. Meanwhile, there's you know podcasts like this and others, you know, all around the country to just try to give some hope and some sense mm-hmm. of relief. That's one of the main reasons that we do this is to show people, like Kevin said just before, you're not alone. Yeah. You're not the only one going through this. You know, I was involved in a fatal shooting in 2014. <clears throat> and when that happened, I thought I was the only one that ever went through that. Yeah. You know, and then you start opening yourself up and then you find out that, you know, other people have gone through that too. And it's scary too. Vulnerability is scary. Very scary. It's scary for alpha, for, for type A personalities. Absolutely. It's so scary to, to break down those walls. And now I got to, I don't know whether I've turned into a total wuss or whatever it is, but now I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I've always probably been a wuss, but that, that, those walls start, that facade yeah. starts cracking down. And you're out there sharing this story of how your facade and your veneer was exactly what I just said. It was, it was, it wasn't the brick and mortar behind it. It was just what it appeared to be. Yeah. But by you sharing your story, but now you've moved on from 1-800-GAMBLER. It sounds like they treated you really, really well. Yeah. 
And to some level, you're still involved with them, correct? Yes. Yeah. Helping out with the transition. Uh, just recently stepped down as assistant director there and it, because another opportunity, just a great opportunity to continue spreading the message of prevention around gambling-related harms on a national level. So I joined Epic Risk Management. It's a UK company that's expanding in the United States. They've been around for about 10, 11 years in the UK and now we're growing in the United States. So I'll be in charge of prevention for the United States to reduce gambling-related harm. <laughs> it went from New Jersey focus to now a national focus. national focus. And gambling is expanding around the country. You know, every state has the choice and the right to legalize sports betting. Because when there was a, a law that was repealed back uh, in 2018 called PASPA, which essentially allowed every state to decide how and if they want to regulate and allow sports betting. So New Jersey was a first mover, got it in really fast. And now other states around the country are rapidly adding sports betting, internet gambling to their list of forms of entertainment. <laughs> so I'm, cer- I'm certainly going to pay homage to both organizations and put links up to our show notes. Those resources that are on there, are they available to anybody? Is there a specific group that you market to? Sure. Yeah. The uh, So for 800 Gambler, you know, it, it's the it's the referral service for the loved ones and for the person who struggles with gambling addiction. It's 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week helpline. We refer people to clinicians, to meetings, to whatever resources that are needed and anyone around the country can reach 800 Gambler. You could be in Iowa and you, you can call 800 Gambler. Your phone call is going to get answered and it's going to go somewhere. We might send it back to people in Iowa for the resources, but your call will be answered. For Epic Risk Management, you know, we're going to have the ability to work with athletes people struggling with uh, criminal justice issues, uh, drug and alcohol, financial sector, youth. It's addiction across the board. Or are you focusing on gambling? Just on the gambling okay. specific. So we're trying to reduce the incidence of gambling-related harm. And you know, prevention starts early. Mm-hmm. You know, Because I think, and we hear this a lot, is that people who start struggling with an addiction, they oftentimes started early in life. They were exposed to it at a young age. They only saw the positives. So true prevention starts in the middle school. You know, I mean, I, I talked about my twins briefly before when they were in middle school, they actually had a coping class in seventh grade. They were taking coping class, like how to deal with life and they couldn't understand coping skills, yeah. but you're planting the seed. And so as they get older, hopefully some of that stuff sticks. Now, is there anything that you'd like to plug to get out there? I know you do your show with Craig on Saturday, airs on Saturday morning on WFAN. Yeah. Hello. My name is Craig. Uh, Craig Carton and myself, uh, 9.30 every Saturday morning on 101.9 FM and 6.60 AM, and also streams on Odyssey, and then it's on demand. Uh, since January, we've been doing a show, and, and it's been great because the outpouring of, of people calling who can now identify. A lot of people have said, you know, I felt like I was alone, just kind of like what you were saying before, Mike, but you're not alone. You know, we, we, you're, the stories are so similar a lot of times. I started, it started off as a fun form of entertainment. Then somehow something happened in my life. You know, it could be divorce. It could be trauma, PTSD. 9-11. 9-11, a, a bank robbery, a shooting. You know, we had a, a, a gentleman from Pennsylvania, Dave Yeager, share his story. He served our country. He was deployed after September 11th. He had a gambling problem in the military. And he was kind of talking about his journey. Anything, you know. And all of a sudden, we use this gambling as an escape from life's problems to avoid having to cope with it. The show with Craig is really... Reduce the stigma around gambling about being that degenerate that we talk about, the name calling. You have such a national level figure in yes. Craig Carton. It's just going to reach that many more people. He's great too. I mean, he's got a great story. I mean, it was well documented on HBO. Yep. He talks about it on the air. You know, he was blessed with another opportunity to rejoin the air in the afternoon show with Evan. And, you know, he's, I, I've had the privilege to kind of just like get to know him through the, through the podcast. Just a wonderful person. And, you know, people always have opinions. People have opinions of me. People have opinions of him. People have opinions. When you do something wrong, there's that mark that's left. And and that's okay. You know, people can always have an opinion. That's fine. You, you know what's great about Craig? I listen, listen I don't I don't like today's music, so I listen to WFAN all day when I'm in my car. Because he's like sixty five years old. That's why he's like fifty five. <laughs> Leave me alone. Oh, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. There, so. there, there's no music out there from my generation anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Benny Goodman Orchestra is, is done, so don't worry about it. The, the show Craig does during the week with Evan, he's just out there. You know, he's, yeah. I mean, he's a thousand miles a minute, hysterical. Yeah. I love the. He's such a different person on Saturdays. Yeah. When when you do the show with him, he's just such a, you know, because I, I listen to it on the way up here every Saturday. Yeah. And he's just such a straightforward, 
getting help out there and getting the word out there to different people. Does a great job. I mean, I I couldn't ask for a a better opportunity and and to have someone like him who, and you know, he's, you know, and and obviously he's in recovery. He gets it. He knows at times you almost say it's like a life and death situation. I mean, that's what it almost feels like sometimes. Sometimes you'll hear people say, listen, I don't have another chance. You know, I've gotten my chance again. I don't, you know. You do your best work when there's no plan B. (sighs) Yeah. When, when that's the only shot you got. Yeah. Is order to, if you succeed or you die. Yeah. So Dan, you, this, you're doing some wonderful stuff here and we're coming to the end of this thing right now. And I, I always ask this question of every person because I think it's really important to complete that journey. You've gone through all this different, all these different suffering in your life. What do you think it has taught you? A word I used earlier that I come back to regularly is perspective. I think when you can go through suffering and try to find the positives despite the suffering, even in the midst of the suffering, trying to find the calm in the storm, if you will. I think all of this has kind of taught me to to slow down a little bit more, appreciate the good a little bit more because I've seen the other side, be thoughtful and considerate of other people. I think listening to another person is something that I've done more through all the suffering too. Because when you're, when you're struggling and suffering, you feel so alone. And there were so many people during the time that would reach out and offer help. And I just didn't want to receive it at the time. I almost took joy in the suffering in the sense, let me just do this myself. And I think one of the things I've learned is that there's no joy in being alone. There's no joy in isolation. One of the things you said too was be considerate. When you're an addict, you're just really considerate of yourself. 100%. You don't care about anybody else. You're just caring about that next fix or that next bet or the ego is next so drink. High. 100%. Yeah. You know, I, I remember one time talking to a group at the church and I said, you know, that you look at the word humiliated and humbled and they're so similar, but they're polar opposite. And really like when something bad happens, when you're in active addiction, you're humiliated, right? Oh, this is humiliating. Look at how people are going to see me now. Yes. How are people going to see me? Because it's all about me, me, yep. me, right? It's that ego. Yeah, exactly. But when you're in recovery and you're working your recovery and you're living your recovery and something bad happens, it can be humbling. And so you're not humiliated, but you're humbled. How will I learn from this? And it helps me keep perspective that I got to take the good with the bad. I'm never going to have one and not the other. They come together. It's a package deal. Yeah. Learning to still find the joy despite those things because it's not waiting for the end. I'm going to be happy when it's going to be, I'm going to be happy even though. So that's kind of what that's kind of taught. Dan, I I can't thank you enough for coming on this show. I think you're really getting the word out and you're paying, you're doing your penance. You're continuing this recovery. You're helping people more than you know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I thank you guys, too, for your service and the work that you guys do. Well, thank you very much for coming in today. So let's think about all the things that we learned. We learned that addiction is not a coping mechanism. All it's doing is just deferring a certain hole that's inside of you that you're trying to fill. you got to put the person first before the words. There is hope and better days ahead. There's perspective and suffering. And my favorite is be humble, not humiliated. That's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of Gambling with Dan Trolero. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we will see you on the next episode.